Support for WMFE comes from Orlando Science Center, offering four floors of wonder and discovery for families and curious minds of all ages. With exhibits, movies, and live shows that promote learning new skills, exploring fresh ideas, and cultivating a better understanding of the world around us. Tickets and more at osc.org. Oh, the places we're going to go. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. From the clouds of Venus to the rocky asteroid Psyche, there's a whole bunch of planetary science happening this year. We'll get a rundown of the new missions taking flight and one mission returning from an ancient asteroid. Then, the Webb Space Telescope continues to beam back stunning images of our ancient universe, and it's also discovering new planets orbiting distant stars. We'll talk about the search for other worlds as JWST heads into its second year in space. The science ahead in 2023, that's ahead here on Are We There Yet? from 90.7 WMFE News. We're in for a busy year when it comes to planetary science missions. A handful of missions are set to leave the planet on missions to the moon, the clouds of Venus, and the moons of Jupiter. And a piece of a faraway asteroid is coming home. Here to talk more about the exciting year in planetary exploration is Jake Robbins. He's a journalist and host of the podcast We Martians. Jake, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Brendan. So, Jake, a lot happening in 2023. I'm glad to have you here to break it all down for us. Let's start with with some moon missions. And um, I was recently on your podcast, We Martians, talking about this. But um, there's a lot happening on the moon this year. Tell us a bit about what's going down. It's, it's a big it's a year, big for, year the for the moon. There's a the lot moon going is in. on. The yeah. moon is in. <laughs> the moon is in. It's very hot right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so we have um, uh, this is the big year for the the commercial lunar payload services program. So this is a new, I, I say new. It's not actually that new anymore, but it's it's this will be the the sort of debut of NASA's new uh, new way to get to the moon, right? So we have these um, commercial commercially built landers uh, that are basically just going to be making regular trips. It's like a bus to the moon. Just these small little robotic landers. Uh, they land there, and then anyone can can buy space on this bus, you know. So there's just all these different payload opportunities for people to go on these clips landers. So we've got two companies that are going to be debuting this year. We have Astrobotic, uh, which is a Pennsylvania-based company uh, headed to to uh, uh, the moon, and then we also have Intuitive Machines out of Texas. So two companies that are having uh, NASA payloads on there. They've got private payloads. There's universities going on there, uh, and this is their big debut. So it's very exciting to see these two new landers uh, heading to the moon. And and we talked a bit about this on on your podcast earlier this month. But planetary scientists are super excited about this because, as you mentioned. You can put all these different scientific instruments on these payloads that these commercial companies are sending down there and, and have access to kind of lunar science, right? I mean, this is kind of the dawn of a new era of of planetary sciences when it comes to understanding the moon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and not only that, it's, you know, there just hasn't been a lot of NASA activity on the surface. So like, there's just not, not only is this a new way to get to the moon, but it's just the first time we've had opportunities at all in a long time to send stuff there. And um, there's so many spots on these landers that NASA is now kind of like collecting 
basically like a cue. Like they have, you know, you can, if you're a lunar scientist, you can, you know, propose your instrument and then go into this pool of like uh, people waiting in line. And then NASA just, every time there's one of these flights, they just go grab, you know, five, 10 of these instruments, slap them on there and off it goes. So it's like this nice regular cadence that's going to be, it's just, yeah, tons of opportunities to do really cool new lunar geology. Let's talk about another mission that will be coming home this year, um, the OSIRIS-REx mission. Um, well, part of it will be coming home. Tell us a bit about that <laughs> that particular mission and why this is a really exciting year uh, for OSIRIS-REx. Yeah, so OSIRIS-REx, it was a, a mission uh, that flew a while ago, and it's been doing its thing off in space for years now. And, and uh, recently, it captured a, a sample of an asteroid, the asteroid Bennu. And so this mission did this really cool maneuver where it you know, approached the asteroid and kind of went right into it. It has this this kind of vacuum instrument on the, the front of it that, that punched into the asteroid, sucked up a bunch of dust, and collected it into a canister. And then it secured that away, locked it up. And now that that mission is on its way back to Earth. And so it's going to be arriving and it's going to be dropping this sample into the atmosphere in a little capsule that will re-enter land and then it'll be recovered so that we can study the little bits of this asteroid preserved in this capsule. It's going to be super exciting. It's the first time we've had this kind of crunchy bits of an asteroid in, in, in a very, well, if ever, really. We've got some stuff out of Japan that has done, uh, you know, asteroid collection, but this is a big, big chunk of stuff we're going to be able to use. Mm-hmm. Crunchy bits. You make that sound so appetizing, Jake. <laughs> yeah. Well, Crunchy hey, if you're a, if you're a scientist studying <laughs> asteroids, this is very appetizing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 the mission doesn't like end when when this little capsule lands later this year, right? I mean, this the, scientists will be studying what's in here for decades to come, right? Yeah, yeah. In two ways, it doesn't end. So you're right in that these samples will be, you know, they will be preserved and and kept safe so that scientists can continually to continue to go in there and grab little pieces to do whatever study they need to do on it. So these samples will keep giving to us for a very long time after they arrive. Um, but then the orbiter itself is also going on to do an extended mission. And this is actually a pretty exciting story because NASA approved it for a sort of unordinary amount of time. Usually these missions can't get approved for more than two or three years at a time in an extended mission. But Osiris Rex was approved for a nine-year mission extension to go and study an asteroid called Apophis. And Apophis, if you if you remember a long time ago, this this asteroid made a lot of news because when they discovered it, it was on what they thought might be a collision trajectory for Earth. So it was like a very scary thing when we first saw it. Uh, thankfully, we've done some measurement refinements and we've determined it's not going to hit us, uh, but it's still going to be coming very close and we're going to be able to study that as it comes. Uh, it, I think Osiris-Rex will make it just after it you know, passes by Earth safely. Uh, so we're going to be able to really get a good look up close with that. I mean, I'm remembering back to kind of some of the stories of Osiris-Rex arriving at Bennu and like, I mean, it it was completely surprising as to like what the surface was like. There were these geysers that were spewing out on it. Like, I mean, Osiris-Rex is just showing that we really don't know much about these things that are, you know, kind of in our space. Um, and so I, I think it'll be very exciting to hear, you know, what Osiris-Rex can find at this at this new asteroid. Let's move on to another mission. Uh, I love this name, the Juice Mission. <laughs> Speaking uh, yes, of appetizing yes. missions. It's a great name. <laughs> have your crunchy bits of penny with a, with a tall yeah, glass so of juice. <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to wash it down, right? Uh, yeah, so JUICE is the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, and this is a, a mission out of the European Space Agency. So uh, very exciting because it's going to be, uh, you know, part of this sort of new era of studying the Jovian system, the moons of Jupiter. Um, we haven't had any missions dedicated to the moons ever. We've had a few missions that have gone to Jupiter uh, many a while ago. You'll remember Voyager uh, or Galileo. Uh, we have Juno there now, but it's primarily focused on Jupiter itself. And so uh, JUICE, along with um, the NASA mission, the Europa Clipper, which is launching in 2024, those two missions are going to be headed off to actually study Ganymede and Europa and Callisto and really kind of look at these these. Uh, very strange worlds. I mean, they're they're moons, but you know, geologically speaking, they're planets. They have all the same features of planets. They have interesting geology. They're they're round. There's active processes happen on there. We've got ice. We've got mountains. We've got oceans underneath the ice. There's lots of crazy stuff happening there. And so, Juice is going to head off there. It's going to be exploring three of the icy moons, uh, and it's actually going to be the first spacecraft to orbit one of these moons. It's going to go into an orbit around Ganymede and study that directly, which is uh, really, really exciting. We've never done that before. Uh, so yeah, that's going to be a big one that's launching this year for sure. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that they these are unique environments. I mean, why are they so enticing to planetary scientists? I mean, could could there be evidence of of life on these moons? Why, why are we, why are we so interested in them? Yeah, well, that's just it. So these, these moons provide what we think, you know, or at least what we know of today as potentially habitable environments. These oceans that are beneath the, the thick icy crust of these moons um, are, are places where we think there's tidal energy creating heat. And so, you know, these are warmer environments. There's lots of water, you know, warm and wet are, are what we think of when we think of life on Earth. Anytime we've found places on Earth that have water and heat, there's life there. Uh, and so uh, thinking about these moons as maybe the, the, the best possibility in our solar system besides Earth that could harbor life if it does exist out there. So we want to know everything we can about these environments. How are they formed? How much energy is there? Um, you know, what sort of environment is this? And can we understand it the, as best we can so we can really keep up our look for life? Um, another interesting mission is taking flight on Rocket Labs. Um, tell us a bit about this planetary mission um, that's flying on, on one of these relatively new uh, rockets to hit the market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is a, a interesting one because it's an entirely private mission. And so um, the founder of Rocket Lab, Peter Beck, is a uh, a known fan of the planet Venus. And he really wanted to uh, not only just study it because he, you know, he's really into the planet, but he wanted to demonstrate that there are more than just, um, you know, more than just NASA can send missions to these planets. And so he's teamed up with some scientists, um, notably uh, Dr. Sarah Seeger out of MIT, to, to build this uh, tiny little demonstrator mission that's going to be plunging into the atmosphere of Venus. Uh, it's this little capsule that will measure the atmosphere all the way down. They have this kind of slow 10-minute descent to the surface, and they're going to be able to gather a lot of information about what those clouds are like, because the clouds of Venus, they're almost like their own little ocean in a weird way. It's a very thick atmosphere. There's lots of stuff going on there, lots of chemistry, lots of activity. And so understanding those, uh, those clouds and that atmosphere is, is really cool. Um, and yeah, so this Venus Life Finder mission is what they're calling it. Again, we're always looking for life. Uh, it's going to be launching on the tiny little Rocket Lab Electron rocket and using some new technology they have for traveling through space uh, on their Photon bus. It's uh, it's pretty exciting. So that's going to be that's on the books this uh, this spring. Mm -hmm. And and I remember 
you know, Venus hitting the headlines a bit ago about, you know, the findings of, of or the signature of phosphine in in the atmosphere of, of Venus and some debate as to whether or not this could, you know, be from signs of life or some biological process. Is this kind of probe going to help settle that debate or, or you know, what might we find? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And wh- whether it'll settle the debate or not, probably not, but it'll definitely <laughs> contribute to it, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we discovered these these phosphine molecules and, and that was a big, um, uh, uh, big headline. It's since been sort of walked back a little bit. There's been more studies that have suggested some alternative uh, uh, reasons for why this phosphine might be there or whether there was phosphine even measured at all. There's lots of different kind of discrepancies there. And so, you know, that that headline is is kind of in our past now, but uh, this is going to be an in situ measurement of the atmosphere. So it's going to be a, a spacecraft with instruments in the clouds themselves measuring directly on the spot. And that's always good information. And so uh, whether it, it solves it or, you know, absolves it or whatever it's going to do to it, it's going to definitely help us answer that question better. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and another mission taking flight this year, the heavy metal mission. I like to throw up some horns whenever I talk about Psyche. Uh, <laughs> tell, tell us a bit about Psyche, where it's going and 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 what it hopes to find. Yeah. yeah Psyche was a mission we were hoping it was going to launch last year. Um, unfortunately, there were some uh, problems with, the, with getting it ready. The testing was not ready and um, there were some uh, management issues that we had to solve both on the on the JPL side and on the project team side, but it uh, looks like they've got it all figured out now. And so Psyche is going to be launching this year, a uh, very exciting mission headed to the the metal asteroid Psyche, which is basically, you can kind of think of it as like a proto-planet. It's like, it's got the the thick metal core and then it just never assembled a planet around it. And so it's, it's almost like a record of what an early planet might look like. And we can go there and really get a good look at you know, uh, a look into our own history on planet Earth. So that's very, very exciting. We've never been to a metal asteroid before. You know, we talked about Osiris Rex and learning all these new things about different asteroids. They're all different. They all have their own unique, you know, characteristics and personalities. And this is a really, really special one that we're going to be able to see. And plus it's launching on a Falcon Heavy, which is always fun to watch. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a very busy year for planetary sciences. Jake Robbins, I will turn to you to cover all of these important missions on your podcast, We Martians. Thank you so much for the rundown and and thanks for joining us, Jake. Oh, no problem. Anytime. Learn more about Jake's podcast at WeMartians.com. Earlier this month, I joined Jake on his show to talk about the lunar missions I'm most excited about this year. So be sure and give that a listen. Still to come, JWST discovers an exoplanet, what's ahead for the space-based telescope and its hunt for life in our universe. Are we there yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. It's been a little over a year since the Webb Space Telescope left this planet, and only about six months since it's been conducting science operations. In that short time, it has beamed back incredible images and given us the deepest look into our cosmic past. And recently, it discovered a planet. Here to talk more about the science observations of JWST and its contribution to the discovery of exoplanets, planets outside our solar system, is Eric Perlman. He's an observational astrophysicist and professor at Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne. Eric, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you. So uh, exciting, exciting findings from JWST since we last spoke. As you know, I love exoplanets. JWST discovered an exoplanet. Why, why is this so remarkable, uh, this recent finding from, from JWST? So it's remarkable for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, just simply because of how small of a planet is and, and because it's a rocky planet. So let me go over exactly uh, what it was that, it, that uh, JWST discovered it. Um, and let me also mention the role of another um, orbiting telescope in, its, in, in the discovery of this exoplanet. This is TESS, uh, which uh, first hinted at the presence of this exoplanet, which has the um, tremendously uninspiring name of LHS 475b, or four, 475 or 457, I forget. Anyway, it has that tremendously uninspiring name. So the, the, the star that this planet orbits is a, a small red star, and um, this planet is a little bit less massive than the Earth. It's, a, it's probably a rocky planet. It has a radius about that of the Earth also. And the thing that uh, really, me really is important about this is the fact that it's an Earth-sized planet. And so these are the planets that only JWST can uh, discover and confirm because you need incredibly good data to... Uh, discover these exoplanets because you know we're we're discovering them using um, transits, and so what that means is that the planet is passing in front of the star that it orbits, and it's lined up with us, so it blocks out a small fraction of the light from that star. In the case of this exoplanet, it blocked out about a thousandth of a percent of the light of its star. Okay. Incredibly minuscule, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so it, it 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 takes an incredibly good observatory to do this. You know, it, it's not only the size of of JWST, but it's also, um, you know, the, the space environment gives JWST advantages that no other telescope has, okay? Because, you know, any telescope on Earth is affected by who knows what on the Earth. Everything from clouds to weather to winds to you name it. And you know, Hubble, well, Hubble's problem is that Hubble is A, smaller, and B, you know, it's, it's, its background is, is uh, not as low. So um, really, there's no other telescope that could do this as well. You mentioned TESS, and I know before TESS came, came Kepler, um, and, and those telescopes, their sole purpose was to identify these exoplanet categories. And my understanding was the JWST was to go out there and either confirm or take a closer look at it. I mean, but it seems that JWST is actually making these confirmations 
itself. I mean, is is that the goal for JWST is to identify these candidates or follow up? Like, is that why this is remarkable in itself? Just give me an understanding of what its purpose is. Right. It, it is one of the purposes for which JWST was built. It's not the only purpose. Obviously, it was also built to take a look at the very early universe and the first galaxies and stars. Looking at these exoplanets and particularly the small Earth-like ones or potentially Earth-like ones is an important part of its mission. You know, I also want to mention that one of the other things that uh, JWST did with this exoplanet, it not only discovered it, uh, it obtained a spectrum of the planet, which is the other remarkable thing. A spectrum is really the only way that we can try to tell what's in its atmosphere. And in this case, that was also very interesting. That spectrum showed that, well, one of two things, either the planet doesn't have a significant atmosphere or it has an atmosphere that could be uh, mostly carbon dioxide, not dissimilar to Venus, which either of those things is very possible. This is a planet not only orbits a, a small red star, but orbits it so closely that its year is two days long. And it's locked in what we call synchronous rotation around that particular star, which means that its year and its day are the exact same length. When you have something that is in synchronous rotation, you have half of the planet where the star is overhead or, you know, you know, basically locked in the same position the whole time. So it's day on that half of the planet all the time. And it's night on that half of the planet, on the other half of the planet all of the time, which means it has an extremely hot half and an extremely cold half. So the hot half could have very little atmosphere. There's something that you said earlier really fascinates me. So JWST identified this planet based upon the transiting method, right? It, it, it looked at the amount of light from this star that was diminished when this planet went in front of it in between the telescope. And it was thousandths of a percentage, this very small amount, this minuscule amount that it found. But you're also telling me that it was able to grab an observation of the light that's passing through the atmosphere and tell us what's inside of it. Like that just, that goes to show just how powerful this telescope is, right? I mean, not only is it identifying exoplanets, it's it's telling us what is inside these exoplanets. That has got to, for, for, for people that study exoplanets, that's got to be an incredible revelation. I can only imagine what this means for the future of, of identifying exoplanets, right? It's, it's incredibly exciting because, uh, as I said, it's the only way that we can find out what is in the atmosphere. If we want to find out uh, that there are Earth-like planets around other stars. It, we, it's not enough to just say that they are the size of the Earth and the mass of the Earth. We also have to confirm that they have an atmosphere like the Earth's. And that particularly means certain things. If we want them to host life, they need to have oxygen. They need to have water. A spectrum can discover those things. Eric, this is coming at us, you know, about a year after this telescope was launched. I mean, it's only been about six months since we've been getting observations uh, back from, from this observatory. I mean, what else is 
is kind of piquing your interest that's coming from from this? There are a whole lot of things. And, you know, I, I was just looking at this the other day. Images of planetary systems that are in the process of forming. And what really piqued my interest here is this one uh, particular system called AU Microscopy. What's amazing about this is that you have this disk of material about the size of our solar system. And we have this incredible image that shows the disk with condensations of material that look like they could become planets. It's, 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 it's just amazingly detailed. So that's, that's one. Uh, you have these images of some of the first galaxies uh, in a number of deep fields with spectra that confirm that they really are galaxies from the very early universe because of their very large distance. You, you, you have objects, again, from the very early universe that appear to be galaxies that are basically dynamically stable. They're like the Milky Way in that they don't have um, other galaxies appearing to stream in. They have old apparent stellar populations. This is weird for galaxies that are only 500 million years old or so. And so this is some really interesting stuff. And it, it's just getting started. I mean, I want to sort of uh, remind everybody of what you just said, right? JWST is a year old, and we've only really been getting science data for six months. And something like this happened with Hubble, too. We started getting the the absolute best results after it was launched. And remember with Hubble too, since it was since since it was not quite right when it was launched, the best results came after it was fixed. And so here, yeah, it was launched right, but you don't always know that the first observations are going to be the most exciting. And there's just more to come. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know how much more exciting they can go. And we're, we're, you're talking about finding Earth-like planets, the actual formations of, of, of planetary systems and deep looks into our, our cosmic past, which is absolutely incredible. It, it, it is, but we, we didn't build JWST just for three things, right? We built, we built it to be a gift that keeps on giving. And it's it's gonna be exactly that. And you know, it's got at least 10 more years of life. And what that's going to mean is that every year is going to bring more of these discoveries. Who knows what this next year of observations is gonna bring? There is right now a competition uh, that is opening up for the next year's year of observations. I'm writing two proposals for that. Who knows if I'll get time. You know, the, the whole goal is to find the next list of uh, super exciting, super important observations, right? It is the gift that keeps on giving, and hopefully you will come back and talk to us about those gifts. <laughs> We're speaking with Dr. Eric Perlman. He's an observational astrophysicist at the Florida Institute of Technology. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck on those proposals. Thank you, Brendan. That was Eric Perlman, an observational astrophysicist and professor at Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org. 
Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira. Script editing this week from Danielle Pryor. Thanks, Danny. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>